you have a Bible, if you'd please turn to Acts 15. The passage will also be on the screens in front of you. But before I get to the passage, I want to ask you this question. Uh, have many of you studied the uh, 1968 Democratic National Convention? And here's why I mention that. That, that was a, a con- convention for the ages. All right, so let me, let me set the stage for the 1968 Democratic National Convention so you can realize all that was going on at the time. And I feel like I'm a little bit this way. I don't know if that's... Okay, I just feel a little more centered now. Um, I don't know if that was in my head or not. Um, Lyndon Johnson, the sitting president at the time, had decided to not run for re-election. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., had been assassinated on April 4th of that year. And just a, a short while later, on June 6th, one of the Democratic frontrunners, Bobby Kennedy, was also assassinated. The convention was held that year in the city of Chicago. Now, I'm not from Chicago. My, my wife's family is from the Chicagoland area. And they tell me that the, one of the mantras in Chicago is vote early and often. And the often part refers to the same election. So... Um, so you had, this, you had this convention, and all this is happening, it's going on, it's in the city of Chicago, and you have Richard M. Daly as, I'm sorry, Richard J. Daly as the mayor. He'd been the mayor for 12 years. He ruled the city with an iron fist. And, and just in case that's not enough excitement and turmoil already, you also had Vietnam protesters who decided to come to the city of Chicago and to protest, and they flooded the streets. And it led to rioting, looting, and confrontations with police. And in the midst of all that, it was one of the few times ever where going into the convention, um, the delegates did not know who would come out as the candidate. Sounds a lot more interesting than the conventions that we have nowadays, right? Which are basically giant um, parades. They're big advertisements for a candidate who's already been chosen by the party. But But think about 1968. So much uncertainty for our country. You had the Vietnam War going on. The Cold War was still raging. And people are wondering, what's the future of America hold? And as significant as the 1968 Democratic National Convention may seem to history books, we are going to read about today, in our passage, a convention of sorts or a council which was actually far more important in its significance. Far more important. In Acts 15, we have what scholars call the Jerusalem Council. It happened roughly 15 to 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And from the outside, this looked like nothing. Instead of a, a rocking stadium like we have these days, filled with thousands of people, lights, TV cameras, you had maybe 40 to 50 people meeting in a structure that we would barely recognize as a home. But they were debating something that was hugely important. And so let's pick up the story by reading Acts 15, verses 1 to 21. This is God's word. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses... You cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. 
So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he had accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them. He purified their hearts by faith. Now then... Why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogue on every Sabbath. Let's go into God's presence now in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, as we spend a few minutes now reflecting on pride and grace, we pray that we would see that each of us has pride that must be laid at the foot of the cross so that we might be washed with your grace and receive the good news of Jesus and be filled up with you so that we can be used how you desire to use us in this world. So, Lord, we pray that your grace would be present even now and that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So very quickly to set the stage. Um, why, why was this council so significant for the early church? Uh, At first glance, this seems like a small issue, circumcision. Who really cares? You know, if we think about it, it seems like an issue that is random. If we're honest, maybe slightly awkward to talk about. But the truth is, a lot more was at stake than simply this question of circumcision. Really, this is the question that's being debated by the apostles and elders in Acts 15. They are discussing the question, how is a person saved? 
or is God's grace enough to truly save a person? So this was a huge issue with huge implications. And we're going to quickly go through four points this morning about this issue. The presenting issue, circumcision, that's what it appears to be about. The true sickness is very, really pride. The antidote is God's free grace. And the call is laying down our rights for the sake of the gospel. All right, first of all, the, the presenting issue, circumcision. What all the hullabaloo about? I mean, what's, what's the big deal, like I said, with this issue? It seems from our perspective today, like we all know circumcision is not what saves a person or it's not what, what makes God love a person. So what's the big deal with this issue? We, we've got to know a little bit of our Old Testament history to appreciate this because God calls his people. He starts with the patriarch Abraham. And he calls Abraham to himself and he makes promises to Abraham that you can read about in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15. And then in Genesis 17, God gave Abraham and his descendants the sign of circumcision. And you have a couple uh, verses on your screen highlighting that. Genesis 17, 10, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Genesis 17, 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So this, it's really not about the sign so much as what the sign represented. It's it's like today. I mentioned weddings earlier. And today we have have men wear a wedding band, women wear a wedding band and an engagement ring. And that is communicating and representing to anyone around this person is married. I'm now, uh, this person is in the covenant of marriage. And so circumcision represented God's promises to his people. Now, at, at the time when this church council is going on, this issue of circumcision was probably the, the most important issue that distinguished a Jew from a non-Jew. All right. You, you have other things going on. You have food laws, you have holy days, you have purity laws, but you couldn't be a good Jew if you were a male and you were not circumcised. It was a non-negotiable, it was an oxymoron to, to say you, to have a non-circumcised Jewish male. And it became a point of pride. It became a way of saying, hey, we're better, we're different, we're not like these, these Gentiles over here. God loves us, he's made his promises to us. And it had become this point of pride for them. But now everything has changed. Because now the apostles are going around. They're saying to everybody, okay, listen. Uh, Jesus, Jesus has come. The Messiah has come. He's died for your sins. He's risen from the dead. The Holy Spirit has come at Pentecost. And now, if you're Jewish, what are you seeing around you? You're seeing Gentiles in spades coming to Christ. You're seeing people from every nation coming to Christ. And if you're Jewish, you're thinking something like this. Now, now wait a minute, uh, Paul and, and Barnabas. We accept that Jesus is Lord. We accept that he's Messiah. We even accept that he died on the cross and rose again. But let, let's, let's not go overboard here. I mean, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Circumcision, that's, that's a non-negotiable. I mean, come on. I mean, that's And the law of Moses too. I mean, you can't get rid of those things. So the presenting issue here that they're debating is this issue of circumcision. 
But really, the issue runs deeper than that. If you look at your passage, if you look at verse 5, when the actual council happens, the scriptures say, some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. So what we see here is that the issue is not just circumcision. It's more than that. It's, it's about a whole identity rooted in something other than Jesus. Their identity uh, for these believers was, being, was rooted in their being Jewish and in their being separate and them holding all these different customs. And really, what we're talking about here is good old-fashioned pride. These believers said, look, we're, we're, we, we're better than these people. We've always had these different things that we did and these different marks that we had and these different customs that we followed that made us different. And the message of the gospel is whatever you're holding on to, whatever you're proud of, makes you no better than anyone else. We live in an old home. Um, we, we, uh, we bought our home about a year and a half ago. And the home, our home was built in 1927. It's here in Teaneck. And I remember... Uh, we, we were walking, when I was first seeing the home, we were walking along the side of the home one day, and I saw a metal box. It's a square metal box. Some of you are instantly know what I'm talking about right now. Um, some of you are thinking, what is this? Th- there is also a metal box on the inside wall of the house. So on the outside wall, there's a metal box with a handle. On the inside wall, there's a metal box with a handle. I, the first time I saw it, I said, I have no idea what this is. And uh, then someone said to me, maybe the real estate agent, they said, Josh, um, that is an old-fashioned milk box. So back in the day, uh, back in 1927, the milkman would come and he would have fresh milk and he would open up this metal door and he'd put the milk in and then, you know, lock the door and then you would come down the stairs and you had your own little metal box to open and, you know, you'd, get, you'd have fresh milk for the day. So now imagine with me for a minute if I travel back in time, not in a DeLorean, probably in like a Tesla S or something like that. Um, you know, we can do better than a DeLorean, maybe a Tesla X, because it has the doors that go up now. Um, imagine if I traveled back in time to 1927, and I found a milkman who was riding a bicycle with a basket in the front with those glass jars of milk, and he had the white coat on, and he had the white hat on, and somehow I were to take him, and I were to put him in the car, and I were to drive to, and I were to drive forward in time, go back to, to, to the present, as it were, like back to the future, and, and all of a sudden we're back in the year 2015. Think about how disoriented that milkman would feel. He would quickly learn that if he tried to ride his bike and deliver milk at the wee hours of the morning, he would probably be arrested for trespassing, as well as he wouldn't find one of those metal boxes on the outside of most houses he would quickly realize that the white coat and white hat are no longer cool. Um, At least they haven't come back yet, as far as I know. And he would quickly realize that his job was gone forever. Things had changed. His career identity is gone forever. And what that milkman would need is job training. He would need to find a new source of identity because that which he knew was gone forever. Just in case you're curious, some other jobs that no longer exist include street lamp lighters, switchboard operators, and my personal favorite, bowling alley pin setter. Um, We don't need those anymore. 
if you were Jewish, the coming of Messiah King Jesus was like that. Your identity now had to totally change. I mean, all the promises were there. They were always pointing to Jesus and pointing to the Messiah. But of course, in in our sin and in our pride, the Jewish people had made those pointers, those promises. They'd made them their own identity. And so for the Jewish people, everything had changed and it wasn't going back. You can't go back to 1927 in the year 2015. And so these Jewish believers are now called to center their identity not on their customs and their heritage and circumcision and the laws of Moses and all that, but to center their identity on Jesus and on Him as their Lord and Savior. You know, interesting question. Were these people, this party of the Pharisees, were they believers? I think it's a good question. I'll tell you what's interesting. Verse 5 calls them believers. It says, some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. So this is relevant for us because You know, we think maybe once we come to Christ that we're no longer tempted to put our identity in other things. And we're no longer tempted to have pride in in maybe who we are and what our education is or what our background is or maybe how much we know about the Bible or, or maybe what good people we are and maybe the fact that we don't do these certain sins. And the truth is that the battle to put pride to death is a battle that we fight each and every day. It's not just a battle that we that we fight when we come to Christ for the first time, but rather that battle to say, I- I'm not going to put my value in, in anything else, but simply in Christ and what he's done is a battle we fight every day. So that's their side of the argument. But now Peter stands up, and I imagine uh, a scene of a courtroom, you know, maybe like something from the movie To Kill a Mockingbird or a more contemporary movie like A Time to Kill, and... The Pharisees, the party of the Pharisees have made their point. Now Peter is going to respond. And what does he respond with? He responds simply with the free grace of God in Christ. What what is the antidote for my pride? What is the antidote for, for your pride or for any person's pride? It's God's grace. That's what we need. Follow uh, Peter's argument with me here. His... his his presentation here. Peter stands up and he says, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that, that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. So Peter's first point is this. Look, I've been appointed to, to proclaim this message. I'm proclaiming it. And look, we can't deny this, folks. People are coming to Christ. People from all around the nations, it's not just Pentecost, people are coming to Jesus. Non-Jews, Gentiles, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we can't deny this because we see that they have the Holy Spirit. Then Peter goes on and he says this, He made no distinction between them and us, for he purified their hearts by faith. Why then do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that we either that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear. The next thing he says is this. You can try to obey God's laws perfectly. You you can try to be a perfect person. But if you do that, God's law becomes a yoke. It becomes a burden. Because no one can fulfill it perfectly. 
I was just talking to someone the other day, someone I'd met actually at a, um, when I was getting my car fixed. And I asked this person about God casually, uh, just came up in a conversation. And the person said to me uh, something I'm, I'm, I've heard many times. The person said, you know what? I try to be a good person. That's what they said. I try to be a good person. I try to do the right things. And I don't question that person's uh, honesty when they were telling me that. But who defines what a good person is? Who defines what the standard of, of being good enough is or just trying to do the right thing? Peter, he knows that we can't go to God that way. And he says, when we try to relate to God that way, the law is a yoke of slavery around our necks that neither we nor our ancestors could bear. But then we come to verse 11. And this is amazing grace, how sweet this sound. Verse 11 No, Peter says emphatically, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. That's it. That's the gospel right there. Whether whether you were a a Jew or whether you are a person today, you or me, if we're putting our identity in anything else other than God, if we have pride in anything other than God, the salvation that we've been granted, then there's no leg to stand on. Because Peter says, we are all saved the same way through the grace of God in Christ. Each of us, myself included, should ask this question. Ask yourself this question. What is the one thing in the world that I am the most proud of? You know, usually this thing is something that we that we want that we make known when we want to impress someone or when we first meet someone we we imply it or we lead on or in some way we show the thing that we value the most the thing that we are the most proud of you know think about how subtle pride is in our lives most of us know that it's not kosher it's not appropriate to flaunt our pride and our success in front of others. So we look at somebody like a Floyd Mayweather Jr. who um, recently had a boxing match with Manny Pacquiao, and I think, I think Mayweather made like $150 million or $180 million, something absurd. And um, I remember before the match, I looked, and I saw that Floyd Mayweather was having a special mouth guard. Now, you know the mouth guard. All it is is a piece of rubber. And he was having a special mouth guard made that was encrusted with diamonds that was worth $25,000. And, um, you know, Mayweather is known for getting up in the middle of the night at 2 and 3 a.m. and just buying cars on a whim, and he has dozens of cars. And we, we can look at someone like that, and we can just say, oh, that's so, that's so over the top. It's so ostentatious. It's, he's so full of himself. What a self-promoter. And we kind of laugh because it's just so ridiculous. But if you're like me, even as I try to say, I'm nothing like that guy, I'm still kind of interested in what kind of cars he has. So I'm watching the slideshow <laughs> on the internet. And uh, even as I'm saying to myself, that it's so ridiculous. 25000 for a mouth guard. Give it away to the Lord. And, and we see somebody like that who's just so unashamed of and, and just so full of themselves. And what do we do? We distance ourselves. We say, oh, man, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. I'm, I mean, I'm glad I'm, I'm not so... Uh, you know, just full of money and success and just want everyone to know it. 
But many of us are simply more skilled in masking our pride. You can be proud of your body and never say a word. Simply express it in the clothes you wear, right? You got it. You got to flaunt it a little bit. Not too much, of course. Um, you can be proud of your education. Become someone that always has a bit of advice on every topic. And, and suddenly, you're not a teachable person. You can become proud of the titles that people know you by. I remember when I, when I first became a pastor and... Um, and I, and I had to get used to hearing Pastor Josh for the first time, you know. And then after a little while, I said, okay, this feels pretty good, um, you know. But you, you can become proud of so many things, right? We can, we can put our identity in so many different things, and our pride is subtle, and we're good at hiding it. And, you, and our pride can be just as entrenched within us as much as the sameless self-promoter who flaunts their money for all to see. Like water under the power of gravity, our pride will find a hole in the facade that we put up and it will leak out in one form or another. And it will come out in who we think is worth our time and who we don't think is worth our time, what we we say when our guard is down, maybe just to our spouse and not to another human being on earth, and what our fears, our hopes, our dreams Now, this is what's so amazing about the gospel. When the gospel grips our hearts, and when it grips my heart and your heart and anyone's heart, we realize we have nothing to boast about. That's why Paul says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. If we're going to be proud of anything, if we're going to brag about anything, let it be that we are saved by the blood of Christ. Let it be that he has redeemed us and that we have done nothing to deserve his grace but rather that Jesus is our everything and our identity is rooted in him and everything that we have or everything that we earn or everything that we possess that is good or beautiful or true or right is a gift from him. And we want to use it for his glory and honor. Listen to Paul, Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews. We can see the stumbling block right here. Come on, how can you say it's grace alone? It's too easy. Foolishness to the Greeks, but to those who are called both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And then Paul closes out this paragraph in 1 Corinthians and he says this, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's our only boast. It's that we are people who have fallen upon our faces to receive the grace of God in Christ. See, here's the truth. Before you can be amazed by grace, before we can be amazed by grace, we have to be offended by grace. Before we can surrender to grace, Our pride has to be crushed by grace. Before we can receive the free grace of God, we have to stop thinking that on some level we deserve this grace, that on some level we are better than that other guy. Before we can be transformed by grace, we have to let go of the idea that we can transform ourselves. You see, grace is a gift. For us, it's a gift. And for us, it's free. But for God, it's not free. 
Grace was the most costly gift that God could ever purchase for his people whom he loves. God paid it by sending his son to die on the cross for us. And so to receive Jesus as a free gift, we have to fully let go of any idea or any sense that we deserve him and we deserve God's love and we must simply fall upon him. You know, you think about a gift. When you receive your, your paycheck, whether it's every other week or maybe once a month, when you receive your paycheck, very few of us jump up and down and say, I can't believe I got paid. Um, maybe some of you do. And, uh, you know, great attitude if you do. But um, <laughs> most of us just get our paycheck and it goes into our bank account and we pay our bills and we, we think, well, um, even though we don't articulate this, we think um, the paycheck is the agreed upon amount of payment for the work that I did. So I deserve this. But think about a gift. Think about a gift that really touched you, whether when you were a child, maybe when you're an adult, maybe it had sentimental value, maybe it had monetary value. But when you receive a gift, you don't react the same way. You, you, are, you do jump up and down. You are excited. You are giving the person a hug. You are saying, thank you. I love you. This means so much. And that's what God's grace is to us in Christ. It's a free gift that we don't deserve. It's the best news in the whole world. And it's the antidote for our pride is to simply fall upon the grace of God in Christ and say, Lord, I don't deserve this, but you love me so much that you would give your only son for me. One last thing to close, and that's the call. The call that we see in this passage, laying down our rights for the sake of others. How should we respond to grace? The Apostle James makes a speech in our passage. I'm, I'm not going to read it, and it's a, it's a bit of an interesting quote, but he's quoting from Amos 9, and here's the point of what James is um, saying in, in the passage. James is saying this, God has promised that all the nations are going to come to him. Now we're seeing all the nations come to him. So therefore... Let's focus on Jesus. Let's remove as many barriers as we can from taking this message to the ends of the earth. And let's keep ourselves pure and holy so that our message comes out in both our words and our deeds. What happens when a person follows Jesus? How should we respond to grace? Very quickly, two things. We should respond to grace with holiness and we should respond with grace by laying down our rights for the sake of others so that they might know Jesus. Um, there's only one moral command here in what James says. He says, keep yourselves sexually pure. That is a, that's a moral command that applies across every generation, any culture. And perhaps that was an issue that the Gentiles were struggling with, sexual purity. But then he makes a few other interesting comments. He says, um, write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols. What is that about? From meat of strangled animals and from blood. And... Without going into all of these issues, um, this is really a question of, of the weaker brother, okay? And, and here's how you can understand how it applies to you today. If you were to have someone over to your house and you were to know that that person struggles with alcohol, maybe, maybe they have struggled with alcohol themselves. Or if you know a little bit about their story, maybe you know there's alcoholism in their family and even the very smell of alcohol bring, brings back painful memories. It may be your right to pull out a bottle of wine. 
But surely all of us with even a, a, a modicum of love for that person would say, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to refrain. I'm going to lay down my rights because I don't want to offend this other person. And these different issues that James mentions here, they might seem strange to us. But at the time, they were issues which would have been offensive to, to Jews who we want to see come to Christ, who James and the other apostles want to see come to Jesus. So they say, listen, just do this. If you know meat has been sacrificed to an idol, don't eat it. All right. Make sure your meat is well done. No rare steaks. All right. No blood in the meat. Um, and, and look out for the weaker brother. Why? Because it's not about our rights. It's about laying down our rights so that other people may know this amazing grace in God. You know, if somehow God were to tell me that I would, God would use me to bring another person into his kingdom by giving up a right that I have, like, for example, alcohol, which is not in my family history. I don't have a struggle with that. But if, if God were to somehow say to me, Josh, um, I need you to give that up so that you can reach these people for Christ. I hope with every part of my being, I would, I would give up that right. Because grace is better. Because God is my, is my highest treasure. I want him to be my highest treasure. He is my highest treasure. And I want others to know grace. And so the, the final application for the passage is to pursue holiness and when it's in our power, to lay down our own rights, whatever that may look like for you and for me, so that others may know this amazing grace of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would crush our pride and build us solely upon the rock that is Christ for the glory and honor of your name. Lord, spread this good news to the ends of the earth. Help us to lay down our rights so that others may know you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.